This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Garrett Burt, Portland, Oregon. The History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 6, Part 13. Yet even this was a small evil compared with that which Protestants had good ground to apprehend. It seemed but too probable that the whole government of the Anglican Church would shortly pass into the hands of her deadly enemies. Three important sees had lately become vacant, that of York, that of Chester, and that of Oxford. The bishopric of Oxford was given to Samuel Parker, a parasite whose religion, if he had any religion, was that of Rome, and who called himself a Protestant only because he was encumbered with a wife. I wished, the king said to Ada, to appoint an avowed Catholic, but the time has not come. Parker is well inclined to us. He is one of us in feeling, and by degrees he will bring round his clergy. The bishopric of Chester, vacant by the death of John Pearson, a great name both in philology and in divinity, was bestowed on Thomas Cartwright, a still viler sycophant than Parker. The archbishopric of York remained several years vacant. As no good reason could be found for leaving so important a place unfilled, men suspected that the nomination was delayed only till the king could venture to place the mitre on the head of an avowed papist. It is indeed highly probable that the Church of England was saved from this outrage by the good sense and good feeling of the Pope. Without special dispensation from Rome, no Jesuit could be a bishop, and innocent could not be induced to grant such a dispensation to Petra. James did not make any secret of his intention to exert vigorously and systematically for the destruction of the established church all the powers which he possessed as her head. He plainly said that, by wise dispensation of providence, the act of supremacy would be the means of healing the fatal breach which it had caused. Henry and Elizabeth had usurped a dominion which rightfully belonged to the Holy See. That dominion had, in the course of succession, descended to an orthodox prince and would be held by him in trust of the Holy See. He was authorized by law to repress spiritual abuses, and the first spiritual abuse which he would repress should be the liberty which the Anglican clergy assumed of defending their own religion and of attacking the doctrines of Rome. But he was met by a great difficulty. The ecclesiastical supremacy which had devolved on him was by no means the same great and terrible prerogative which Elizabeth, James I, and Charles I had possessed. The enactment which annexed to the crown an almost boundless visitatorial authority over the church, though it had never been formally repealed, had really lost a great part of its force. The substantive law remained, but it remained unaccompanied by any formidable sanction or by any efficient system of procedure, and was therefore little more than a dead letter. The statute which had restored to Elizabeth the spiritual dominion assumed by her father and resigned by her sister contained a clause authorizing the sovereign to constitute a tribunal which might investigate, reform, and punish all ecclesiastical delinquencies. Under the authority given by this clause, the Court of High Commission was created. That court was during many years the terror of nonconformists, and, under the harsh administration of Laud, became an object of fear and hatred, even to those who most loved the established church. When the long parliament had met, the High Commission was generally regarded as the most grievous of many grievances under which the nation labored. An act was therefore somewhat hastily passed, which not only took away from the Crown the power to appoint visitors to superintend the Church, but abolished all ecclesiastical courts without distinction. After the Restoration, the Cavaliers who filled the House of Commons, zealous as they were for the prerogative, 
still remembered with bitterness the tyranny of the High Commission, and were by no means disposed to revive an institution so odious. They at the same time thought, and not without reason, that the statute which had swept away all the courts Christian of the realm, without providing any substitute, was open to grave objection. They accordingly repealed that statute, with the exception of the part which related to the High Commission. Thus, the archdiaconal courts, the consistatory courts, the court of arches, the court of peculiars, and the court of delegates were revived. But the enactment by which Elizabeth and her successor had been empowered to appoint commissioners with visitatorial authority over the church was not only not revived, but was declared with the utmost strength of language to be completely abrogated. It is therefore as clear as any point of constitutional law can be that James II was not competent to appoint a commission with power to visit and govern the Church of England. But if this were so, it was to little purpose that the act of supremacy, in high-sounding words, empowered him to amend what was amiss in that church. Nothing but a machinery as stringent as that which the long Parliament had destroyed could force the Anglican clergy to become his agents for the destruction of the Anglican doctrine and discipline. He therefore, as early as the month of April 1686, determined to create a new court of high commission. This design was not immediately executed. It encountered the opposition of every minister who was not devoted to France and to the Jesuits. It was regarded by lawyers as an outrageous violation of the law and by churchmen as a direct attack upon the church. Perhaps the contest might have lasted longer, but for an event which wounded the pride and inflamed the rage of the king. He had a supreme ordinary put forth directions charging the clergy of the establishment to abstain from touching in their discourses on controverted points of doctrine. Thus, while sermons in defense of the Roman Catholic religion were preached on every Sunday and holiday within the precincts of the royal palaces, the Church of the State, the Church of the great majority of the nation, was forbidden to explain and vindicate her own principles. The spirit of the whole clerical order rose against this injustice. William Sherlock, a divine of distinguished abilities who had written with sharpness against Whigs and dissenters, had been rewarded by the government with the mastership of the temple and with a pension, was one of the first who incurred the royal displeasure. His pension was stopped, and he was severely reprimanded. John Sharp, dean of Norwich and rector of St. Giles in the Fields, soon gave still greater offense. He was a man of learning and of fervent piety, a preacher of great fame and an exemplary parish priest. In politics he was, like most of his brethren, a Tory, and had just been appointed one of the royal chaplains. He received an anonymous letter, which purported to come from one of his parishioners, who had been staggered by the arguments of the Roman Catholic theologians, and who was anxious to be satisfied that the Church of England was a branch of the true Church of Christ. No divine, not utterly lost of all sense of religious duty and of professional honor, could refuse to answer such a call. On the following Sunday, Sharp delivered an animated discourse against the high pretensions of the See of Rome. Some of his expressions were exaggerated, distorted, and carried by tale-bearers to Whitehall. It was falsely said, he had spoken with contumely of the theological disquisitions which had been found in the strong box of the late king, and which the present king had published. Compton, the Bishop of London, received orders from Sunderland to suspend Sharp till the royal pleasure should be further known. The bishop was in great perplexity. His recent conduct in the House of Lords had given deep offense to the court. Already his name had been struck off the list of privy councillors. Already he had been dismissed from his office in the royal chapel. He was unwilling to give fresh provocation, but the act which he was directed to perform was a judicial act. He felt that it was unjust, and he was assured by the best advisers that it was also illegal. 
to inflict punishment without giving any opportunity for defense. He accordingly, in the humblest terms, represented his difficulties to the king, and privately requested Sharp not to appear in the pulpit for the present. Reasonable as were Compton's scruples, obsequious as were his apologies, James was greatly incensed. What insolence to plead either natural justice or positive law in opposition to an express command of the sovereign Sharp was forgotten. The bishop became a mark for the whole vengeance of the government. The king felt more painfully than ever the want of that tremendous engine which had once coerced refractory ecclesiastics. He probably knew that, for a few angry words uttered against his father's government, Bishop Williams had been suspended by high commission from all ecclesiastical dignities and functions. The design of reviving that formidable tribunal was pushed on more eagerly than ever. In July, London was alarmed by the news that the king had, in direct defiance of two acts of Parliament drawn in the strongest terms, entrusted the whole government of the church to seven commissioners. The words in which the jurisdiction of these officers was described were loose, and might be stretched to almost any extent. All colleges and grammar schools, even those founded by the liberality of private benefactors, were placed under the authority of the new board. All who depended for bread on situations in the church or in academical institutions, from the primate down to the youngest curate, from the vice-chancellors of Oxford and Cambridge down to the humblest pedagogue who taught Corderius, were at the royal mercy. If any one of those many thousands was suspected of doing or saying anything distasteful to the government, the commissioners might cite him before them. In their mode of dealing with him, they were fettered by no rules. They were themselves at once prosecutors and judges. The accused party was furnished with no copy of the charge. He was examined and cross-examined. If his answers did not give satisfaction, he was liable to be suspended from his office, to be ejected from it, or to be pronounced incapable of holding any preferment in future. If he were contumacious, he might be excommunicated, or in other words, be deprived of all civil rights and imprisoned for life. He might also, at the direction of the court, be loaded with all costs of the proceeding, by which he had been reduced to beggary. No appeal was given. The commissioners were directed to execute their office, notwithstanding any law which might be, or might seem to be, inconsistent with these regulations. Lastly, lest any person should doubt that it was intended to revive that terrible court from which the long parliament had freed the nation, the new tribunal was directed to use a seal bearing exactly the same device and the same superscription with the seal of the old high commission. This ends part 13.